Will you go with me this morning to Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Luke chapter 9. Over the last couple of weeks, we have seen Jesus tell his disciples on a couple of different occasions that he was going to go to Jerusalem and be rejected by the religious leadership there. And that being rejected by them, he was also going to suffer. He was going to die and then on the third day be raised to life. And Luke also tells us that when Jesus told his disciples things like this, they didn't understand. They didn't know how everything was going to fit together, how he could be the Messiah and yet at the same time go to Jerusalem and die. And then we come to verse 51 this morning in Luke chapter 9, which is a major turning point in the gospel of Luke. Even though there's not a chapter division here, chapter division doesn't happen until the end of our passage this morning, almost all commentators see Luke 9.51 as a major turning point in Jesus' ministry. And that is because in verse 51, it tells us that Jesus, beginning at this point, is setting his eyes on Jerusalem. And so Jesus has been ministering. He's been traveling around Galilee, Samaria, Judea, even some outside of those areas to the eastern side of uh, the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River. But now Jesus is approaching the time for his mission to be fulfilled. In fact, we saw last week in the event of the transfiguration, that while Jesus was up on the mountain and talking with Moses and Elijah, that what they were talking about was his eventual departure from this world to go to heaven. And that's what Luke 9.51 says, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And so the time of his mission is drawing near and the fulfillment of that mission is drawing near. And so from this point forward, through the rest of the gospel of Luke, up until uh, really he enters Jerusalem in his uh, triumphal entry, riding on the donkey in Luke chapter 19, from this point till then, Jesus is on the road heading toward Jerusalem. Now, there's a lot of events and a lot of um, stories and teachings of Jesus that happen between now and chapter 19. There's still 10 chapters to go. But those 10 chapters are covering a very short period of time in which Jesus is moving toward Jerusalem step by step, going from village to village on the road, moving toward the goal that his father sent him. And in fact, From this point forward, from here, Luke chapter 10 through chapter 19, we see some of the most unique material that the gospel of Luke has that is different from all of the other gospels. And so verse 51 says that he is heading toward Jerusalem in fulfillment of the father's mission. And verse 52 says, and he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, 
Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went into another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this time that we have this morning to read and to meditate on your word. Lord, these are challenging things that our Savior, the Lord Jesus, teaches us in this passage. He has called us to him, to follow him, to follow him wherever he leads. And Father, that takes grace. It takes power that can only come from you. It takes a radical change of heart and of life that can only be explained by regeneration from the Holy Spirit that you do through your grace and power. Father, I pray that as we walk through these verses today, that you would help us to see what Jesus is calling us to as his disciples, and that we would follow him and listen to his voice and go wherever he leads. And so, Father, I pray that you would bless this time through your spirit. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Jesus understands his mission. He is here for a reason. He is here to come and to give his life as a ransom for many. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life for others. And so Jesus understands that mission. He understands the heavenly timetable and the fact that it is now time for him to move toward the goal for which his father has sent him. And so Jesus and his disciples are in the north in Galilee. And Jesus now is setting his sights on Jerusalem. And in order to go uh, to Jerusalem, to Judea in the south, there was a region in the middle called Samaria. Now, to say that the Jews and the Samaritans did not like each other is putting it very mildly. They hated each other. The Jews... In Judea and in Galilee, they saw the Samaritans as basically a mixed race, kind of half-breeds. The history of that goes back 700 years before the time of Christ. In about 722 BC, the Assyrians came and attacked the northern kingdom of Israel and took a lot of the people into exile up into Assyria. And during that time, a lot of them settled there. And they intermarried with the Assyrian Gentiles. But then during over the course of the next several centuries, a lot of them would come back to Palestine, to the Holy Land. And they settled in this region of Samaria, 
but they were rejected by the Jews who came back from Babylon, who maintained their, the purity of the Jewish race. And so for the Jews, they didn't like the Samaritans. They rejected them. And so as a result, the Samaritans didn't like the Jews either, and they rejected them. And in fact, they also set up two rival forms of worship. So the temple was in Jerusalem. That was the place where Solomon had built it and where it had then been uh, uh, established and rebuilt after the exile in Babylon. That was the center of Israel's worship. But the Samaritans said, no, we're going to worship in our own place. And so they established a place of worship on Mount Gerizim. They even made their own copy of of the Pentateuch, the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, that in some places differs from what we have in our Hebrew Bible in the the books of Genesis through uh, Deuteronomy. And so they, they set up two different ways of worshiping God and they just didn't get along with one another. And so, so much so that when Jews were traveling from Galilee to Judea, a lot of times they would just go around. That was a longer way. It was already a three days journey from Galilee to Judea in the south going through Samaria. But some of them would even go around and make it an even longer trip. But Jesus didn't come just to save purebred Jews, did he? Jesus came to save all peoples, didn't he? He came to save Samaritans. He came to save Jews. He came to save Gentiles. He came to save people like you and me. Jesus then said, I'm going to go through Samaria. And so in verse 52, it says that he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. Now, this may have been as simple as just arranging a place for Jesus to stay when he got there. It could have involved more Uh, in the sense of almost like a John the Baptist forerunner type ministry of going and preaching and preparing the way for Jesus. It's hard to know for sure, but they were sent on ahead to prepare the way for Jesus. And when he gets there in verse 53, the people did not welcome him. They rejected him. They rejected him and rejecting Jesus also is not the sole property of one people group, is it? Just as Jesus came to save many peoples, Jews and Samaritans and Gentiles, so also Jesus is rejected by Jews and by Samaritans and by Gentiles. He's going to be rejected by his own people in Jerusalem and put on a cross and killed. He is rejected also by the Samaritans here in this village that he goes to. They rejected him. They didn't want anything to do with him. Remember the instance that we saw just a little while ago where Jesus was in a region of the Gerasenes, just a little bit east of the Sea of Galilee, probably a more Gentile area. And he cast out this legion of demons who went into this herd of pigs and ran down the hill and died. And then Remember what that text said? The people of that region came to Jesus. And after seeing this man, this demon possessed man in his right mind, they didn't say, Jesus, thank you so much. Here, come and stay. They said, no, get out of here. Leave us. So they too rejected Jesus and told him to leave. 
And Jesus also here in verse 53, it's Luke tells us that his, his sights were set on Jerusalem. So he's on a mission. He's heading toward the city of Jerusalem. And maybe the Samaritans see that for whatever reason, they reject him. They do not accept his messiahship, his claim to be the anointed one of God. But now notice the response of Jesus' disciples. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? This is an amazing verse in scripture. James and John, also known as the sons of thunder, here they display a little bit of that thunder and they want Jesus to call down fire from heaven to destroy this village of the Samaritans, almost in a Sodom and Gomorrah-like fashion. They've rejected you, Jesus. Let's just destroy them now. It's really kind of a bold statement, isn't it? But I think it reveals a little bit of the problem of where the disciples still are in their thinking. I still think the disciples are confused as to the role of Jesus, the Messiah at this point in his mission. And, and maybe they're thinking Jesus is here as King here. He's here to establish his kingdom and to rule the world. So we're just going to get rid of those who reject you. Let's just, let's just purify this thing. Now call down fire from heaven. And, and I think they're just, they're, uh, little mixed up on the role of Jesus and, and what him being the Messiah would mean. Uh, but also, I wonder too, if their motives are pure in this call, this request of Jesus. And by the way, kind of arrogant, isn't it? If Jesus wanted to call down fire from heaven, he could have done that, right? He could have done that on his own. He didn't need James and John to suggest it or to say, hey, here's a good idea. Let's Let's rain down fire from heaven on them. Let's just nuke the whole village. Jesus could have done that if he wanted to do that. But I wonder if James and John, I wonder if their motives are pure because where are they? They're in Samaria, aren't they? They're in Samaria. Jews didn't like these people anyway. This is almost a Jonah-like attitude, isn't it? Remember Jonah, the prophet? God says, I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to preach to them. And I want you to tell them to repent or I'm going to destroy their city. And Jonah says, no, I don't want to go there because if I preach a message of repentance, they might actually listen and they might actually repent. I don't want that to happen. I want God to destroy that city. So I'm going to go somewhere else. James and John have a little bit of that mindset here. I think these are enemies of God's people. These are Samaritans. They don't like us anyway. And now they're rejecting the Messiah. Let's just get rid of them. Call down fire from heaven. And in their defense, though, there is a little bit of biblical precedent for what they're saying here. Because what they're saying is very reminiscent of what Elijah did in 2 Kings chapter 1. In 2 Kings chapter 1, a wicked king, Ahaziah, did not like that Elijah had prophesied that Ahaziah was going to die in judgment from the Lord. And so King Ahaziah 
sent a captain and 50 soldiers to go get Elijah, to take him into custody, arrest him and bring him back to King Ahaziah. And so this captain from Ahaziah and these 50 soldiers come to where Elijah is and they say, hey, you come out here. We're taking you back to Ahaziah. And Elijah says, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven. Boom. Fire comes down from heaven. 51 soldiers gone. King Ahaziah, not sure who survived to be the messenger to go back and tell Ahaziah, but he finds out about it. He sends 50 more and a captain. He didn't learn the lesson from the first guy. So he says, hey, you, Elijah, get out here. I'm taking you back to Ahaziah. If I'm a true man of God, let fire come down from heaven. Boom. Another 51 gone. Third guy comes. He, he, he remembers or he learns. And he says, please, Elijah, man of God, have mercy on me. Do not destroy me and my men. Please, if you were, would be willing, please come with us back to Ahaziah. And Elijah says, okay, I'll come. Fire comes down from heaven, destroys them. Maybe James and John are thinking, hey, Elijah did it. We just saw Elijah on the mountain. Remember that? We just saw Elijah on the mountain with Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration. Let's do an Elijah thing here and call down fire from heaven. But Jesus rebukes them. Verse 55 says, Jesus turned and rebuked his disciples just like God did to Jonah. No, Jonah, you're not going that way because I'm determined to show mercy on this city. So you're coming back. I'm going to swallow you up inside a fish and spit you out on the beach so you can go back to Nineveh and fulfill the mission that I've given you because I want to show mercy to this city. And Jesus here is showing mercy to this Samaritan city. And he tells his disciples, no, that's inappropriate. That's wrong. Do you remember earlier in the Gospel of Luke when Jesus, this is at the beginning of his ministry, And Jesus comes into the synagogue on a Sabbath day and he picks up a scroll of Isaiah and he reads in Luke 4, 18, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That is an exact quote from Isaiah chapter 61 but Jesus stopped short of the full quote. Because in Isaiah 61, the very next phrase says, and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus doesn't say that part in the the synagogue. He stopped short and says, no, I am here to heal the blind, to set captives free, to preach the good news. He did not say, at least yet at this point, I'm here for the day of vengeance of our God. Why? Because that is at some point still coming. What is Jesus' ministry now? Jesus tells us in the Gospel of John, I did not come to judge. I'm not here for judgment, but I'm here that whoever looks on me shall be saved. Just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so too must the Son of Man be lifted up, and whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus is saying to his disciples, he's teaching them a lesson here, isn't he? 
He's teaching them a lesson. And so Jesus rebuked them and he and his disciples went to another village. He's teaching them the lesson that he was trying to teach them earlier in Luke chapter 6, verse 27 and 28. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Jesus had to remind his disciples of that here. And I think the lesson that he's trying to teach them is that a disciple of Jesus Christ is one that follows the example of Jesus by showing mercy. A disciple of Jesus Christ is one that follows the example of Jesus by showing mercy. It's almost as if what they wanted to do here was to finish the job that Jesus told them earlier. Remember earlier, Jesus sent them out two by two to go out into the villages. And he said, if that village rejects you, here's what I want you to do. He did not say, call down fire from heaven, right? He said, if that village rejects you, I want you to take your sandal off, shake the dust off your feet as a witness, as a testimony against that village. What does that say? Basically what it says is, This is not for me, but I'm handing you over to God. As Paul would quote Deuteronomy in Romans chapter 12, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So by taking off their sandal and shaking the dust off their feet, they're just basically entrusting the judgment of that town, that village to God. It wasn't theirs, it was God's. But it's almost here, James and John wanted to say, no, let's just finish the job now. But Jesus has to teach his disciples, no, that is God's job. And it's also in God's timing, isn't it? God will judge. We know from scripture, God will judge sinners. God will judge those who reject Jesus. God will judge them, but it is his prerogative to do that. And it is his timing when that will happen. As Peter reminds us in 2 Peter chapter 3, when the scoffers were saying, where is Jesus coming? Where's the promise of his coming? And Peter reminds them, no, Jesus has not come back yet because God is long suffering. God is long suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The reason why there is time right now before the second coming of Jesus, when he will come in judgment, The reason there's time right now is exactly what Jesus is showing his disciples here. It's a time for mercy. It's a time for opportunity for repentance. It's a time for compassion. And Jesus is trying to show his disciples, here's what being a disciple of Jesus looks like. It is being willing to show mercy as I show mercy, even to those who curse you and who are your enemies. And so a true disciple shows mercy because He has been shown mercy and because Jesus is merciful. But then in the rest of the passage, as they're moving along down the road, Jesus teaches his disciples another lesson on discipleship. And that is a disciple of Jesus Christ is one who is fully committed to him, no matter the cost. A disciple of Jesus Christ is one who is fully committed to him, no matter the cost. And so they're walking down the road, again, heading toward Jerusalem. And verse 57 says that a man approaches them, 
comes up to them on the road and says, I will follow you wherever you go. And so the man initiates this. He comes up to Jesus and essentially says, I want to be your disciple. I want to go with you. Just like these are following with you where you go, I want to go with you. And Jesus says to him in verse 58, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. What is he saying there? Jesus is saying, I don't own a home. I don't own a house. I go from village to village, from place to place, and I sleep wherever someone provides hospitality for me to sleep. In other words, if you're going to come and you're going to follow me, then you need to be willing to to count the cost and understand what that means to follow me. And again, I've mentioned this before a little bit earlier in this chapter of Luke chapter 9, but being a disciple of Jesus is being a Christian. A Christian is a disciple. A disciple is a Christian. And so Jesus is telling this person who wants to be Jesus' disciple, you've got to be willing to sacrifice, to follow me, to go where I go. It means, if necessary, if called on by me, it means willingness to lay aside the pleasures of this world for the sake of the kingdom of God. Remember what Jesus said earlier, whoever wants to save his life is going to lose it. But whoever loses his life now for me and for the gospel, he will find it. He will save it. Jesus is saying, are you willing to go and leave the comforts that you have in order to follow me? And when I read verse 58, I can't help but think that a lot of professing Christians in America would have a hard time with verse 58. And with Jesus' call here. Because we are too comfortable with our homes and our cars and our jobs and the the comforts of life that we have given and provided for ourselves. And some of us would have a hard time if Jesus were to say to us, like he said to the rich young ruler, sell everything you have and come and follow me. That's why Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Are you willing to follow me whatever the cost? And then as they're walking down the road, verse 59 says that he said to another man, follow me. This time Jesus initiates the call. He says, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, it seemed like a reasonable request. In fact, it was a family responsibility to ensure the proper burial of a loved one. He's saying, Lord, let me first go and bury my father who has died. And Jesus essentially, I think, sees this man's heart, sees it as an excuse and says to him, let the dead bury their dead. In other words, Let the spiritually dead go bury their physically dead. 
You're spiritually dead. You're more concerned with the things of this life. You're more concerned with things that are not of the kingdom of God. You're spiritually dead. So go ahead, go back and bury your father who is dead. Again, willingness to come to Jesus and follow him and obey his voice regardless of what he places upon us. Remember what Jesus said in another place? said, if someone is not willing to forsake his mother, his father, is not fit for the kingdom of God. Come and follow me. Come and follow. Still another said, this time the person initiates the conversation with Jesus. And he says, I will follow you, Lord. But first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. And so this man comes and he says, I will follow you, but immediately has a condition. I'll follow you, but first let me go and say goodbye to my family. Again, seems like a reasonable request. And we actually have a biblical precedent for this when Elijah called Elisha to be his replacement. Elisha said, first, let me go back and kiss my mother and father to tell them goodbye. And Elijah says, what, do I, what have I done to you? you? Go ahead. But here Jesus says to the person, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus says, no, you can't look back. Why the difference? Why is Jesus' call higher? It's because Jesus is higher, isn't he? Elisha following Elijah is not on the same level as a disciple following Jesus. And what the lesson is in this passage of what Jesus is telling to these three different people is when you come to Jesus in faith, in repentance, there is a radical break with the old life. It is a radical change of God that takes place in our hearts. And that's why I prayed what I prayed at the beginning of this message. Some of the things that Jesus says here, these things are impossible apart from the power of God. These things are impossible apart from regenerating grace, where where God comes to our hearts without any of our doing. God initiates it and he comes to our hearts and he radically transforms them and gives them new spiritual life. And a part of that new spiritual life is faith, knowing, believing, trusting in who Jesus is and what he has accomplished. But also a part of that regenerating life is a radical break from our life of sin and the kingdom of darkness to come and enter into the kingdom of light. And so in each of these cases, Jesus says, no, there's no more time. There's no more effort, no more focus on the old life. Second Corinthians 5, 17, whoever is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things are gone. Everything is new. Everything has become new. So in coming to be a disciple of Jesus, a believer, a Christian, there are no conditions. And it is not, it is not a simple transactional agreement. Agreement. 
I'm going to say something, and, and I'll probably maybe say it more harshly than maybe I should, but a lot of preachers are sending people to hell. A lot of preachers who think they're preaching the gospel are sending people to hell because they say, hey, if you want to be a follower, if you want to be saved, you want eternal life, just raise your hand. If you want to have eternal life, if you want to be saved by Jesus, just pray this prayer and and just repeat these words and phrases after me. If you want to be saved and go to heaven and have eternal life, just come down this aisle, walk down here and shake my hand and, and let's pray together. As if it's some kind of transactional arrangement. If I do A, then, then B happens. And a, a lot of preachers are selling nothing but fire insurance. And they're not preaching what Jesus told us to preach. What is the Great Commission? Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Jesus did not go say, go out, and have people pray sinners' prayers, right? He didn't say that. Go out and make converts. He didn't say that either. He didn't say, go out and let's, let's get the numbers as high as we can in our church. How many baptisms did you have last year? How many you run in? Let, let's get our numbers up as high as we can. Let's, let's get a bunch of notches on our gospel belt. That's not what Jesus said. He said, go and make what? Disciples. What are disciples? They're followers. They're believers for sure, but they're followers. They're learners. They're people who come and learn of me. That's what Jesus says. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Jesus is not giving these people a simple transaction. I want to be your disciple. Jesus, okay, raise your hand. Okay, pray a prayer. No, he says, come. And are you willing to go and lay your head wherever I tell you to lay your head, even if, you, even if that means going to a, a jungle in the Amazon somewhere, if it means to going to sub-Saharan Africa, if it means going wherever I call you to go, are you willing to go there? There are no conditions. There are a lot of people in our world who think that coming to Christ means I pray a prayer, I walk the aisle, I get baptized, whatever it is, but I can still keep living my life the way I want to live it. It's not what Jesus is calling us to. Jesus shows mercy and grace to the sexually immoral. But when he saves them and redeems them and regenerates them through his spirit, he does not leave them sexually immoral. So Jesus' mercy and grace can go out and find any adulterer, any pornographer, any homosexual, any any sexual deviant person out there that is our world is enthralled with right now, the gospel of grace can find that person, but the gospel does not call that person to leave them as they are. The gospel calls that person to leave their life behind and to put their hand to the plow and not look back. As Paul says in Corinthians, you are immoral, 
adulterers, idolaters, vile, filthy. That is what some of you were. It's what you were, past tense, but now you are sanctified. God's mercy goes out wide and it calls many from all kinds of people, Jews and Samaritans and Gentiles. And he calls the lowest and the poorest and the vilest of sinners. But when he calls them, he transforms them and they come and they follow him. And they don't look back. And Jesus uses this analogy of somebody putting his hand to the plow and not looking back. It's a farming analogy. And those who have done it understand that you can't plow looking backward. You're going to have some interesting looking fields if you plow looking backwards. When you plow, there's a focus, right? You got to be setting your eyes forward. In fact, you fix your eyes on a goal, don't you? You set your eyes on a goal and you plow in a straight line and you head, like Paul says, I press on toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I'm not looking back. Paul says, I, forget those things, forgetting what's behind me. All those things, all those accomplishments, they're just garbage. I'm setting forward now, putting my hand to the plow. I want to know Christ. I want to know his sufferings even and the power of his resurrection. And so a disciple of Jesus Christ is one who shows mercy because we have been shown mercy. And a disciple of Jesus Christ is one who is totally committed to him, no matter the cost. My closing question is, are we too comfortable with the things of this life to do what Jesus asks us to do? Are we willing to share our faith with our neighbors and friends and coworkers? Are we willing to live our Christian faith faithfully and boldly, not arrogantly, but boldly and faithfully in the face of a hostile world? If this nation turns completely, totally, and even legally opposed to Christianity and they want to shut these doors down, will you still follow Christ and live faithfully and boldly as a disciple of Jesus? Or are we too comfortable with this life? No man puts his hand to the plow and looks back. May the Lord help us to search our hearts this morning. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father, we come today at the close of this time of your word. And Father, we simply ask that as you said that you would, that you would send forth your word, that it would accomplish what you send it to do, that it would not return void or empty. Lord, take the words of Jesus, the words that he shared with his disciples and that we have read and thought upon this morning. Take those words, plant them deeply in our hearts and may they fall on good ground that you have prepared and may it bring forth the fruit of repentance and faith and of discipleship in the lives of those in whom you call. Father, I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.